Hi, I'm Fred Burton, and I'm excited to host this special episode as part of our Protective Intelligence Honors Program, a program we developed at the Center for Protective Intelligence to celebrate the top pioneers and thought leaders in physical security. Today, I'm speaking with one of our pioneers, John McClurg, Senior Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at BlackBerry, to discuss his views on leadership, changes in the physical security space, and more. For John's complete bio, please visit our website, protectiveintelligencehonors.com. John, welcome. Fred, it's good to be with you. You know, I've often repeated the old saying that friendships forged in foxholes are some of the most enduring, and I think that includes whether they're cyber or physical. And, and you and I have, not, have had enough years together that I that that little saying came to mind as I reflected <laughs> on the the possibility of spending some time with you this this today. Well, thank you so much for that uh, that kind introduction. And I've always been a big fan of BlackBerry, and wish I still had mine. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> John, how did you get in the security industry? I'm looking at your bio now, and oh my goodness. <laughs> well, you know, in fact, I'm trying to think of any of my associates who, you know, when they were in high school said, you know, I want to be a security uh, mope or, or whatever. <laughs> I, I, my, my intro or ha- having fallen into the security industry may be as serendipitous as everybody else's because it was not something I could say I calculatingly planned uh, at the time I you know, finished high school or whatever. It actually came about through a number of events that started with the two bachelors, a master's, a law degree, and, and then an, an impression that, hey, you know, I think I like academia. I'll go on for a PhD in a critical field of hermeneutics, which no one's ever heard of, but is a study of the variables around which we as humans interpret and give meaning to our world. And the FBI somehow got it into their head that they needed one of those. Uh, We had a rather protracted argument over whether that was truly the case. They put me through their ropes at Quantico for four months and ended up sending me to Los Angeles uh, to be on one of the first joint terrorism task force where we worked counterterrorism, we worked uh, cyber matters and espionage. And it was while working on that joint terrorism task force that the the boss came in one day and said, who knows anything about Unix? I had mistakenly thought he said, you eunuch. And I, <laughs> I, I knew about the Unix because I grew up in Libya before the Six Day War. The boss plopped the file down and I said, oh my gosh, he didn't say eunuch. He said Unix, the uh, operating system, the telephone operating system that they developed at Bell Labs, where eventually I would be the first CISO. That was ironic. But it was you know, serendipitously, having been thrown into the deep end of the the pond into that cybersecurity space, that I then went up against uh, uh, one of the first freakers or hackers, Dark Dante, who taught me by the way in which he attacked the phone company by picking the physical 30-year-old rusty lock, gaining access, gathering up passwords, equipment, and manuals, and then advancing a far more sophisticated cyber attack uh, than he ever could have done. But for that that physical world vulnerability of the physical lock. You know, that was sort of the aha epiphany for me that said, you know, that's the way the future is going to go. We're going to see more and more this interdependency between physical and cyber, physical vulnerabilities undermining cyber interests, cyber vulnerabilities undermining physical interests. That's the the future. And so I actually started touting that as the model of the future. The Bureau liked that and sent me on the road to actually start engaging corporations or the security industry. That was really my first exposure to the security industry. Uh, a number of different organizations liked that. One of them was Bell Lab or AT&T or Bell Labs. 
And they eventually came to me and said, hey, John, we, you know, you can talk a good talk, but we'd really actually like to see you build a program around the principles you've just shared with us. So, I mean, that's a rather long story there, but eventually that is what then, you know, the FBI happened to tell me I was too young to be a, an SES or a general in their organization. I said, well, fine. If you think I'm too young, Bell Labs wants me now. I made that jump and boy, I was, I was into the security industry, at least the private sector version of that. So that's my story. <laughs> wow. And John, I, I did not know that you grew up in Libya. Well, it was before the Six-Day War. I remember I was old enough to, to to receive the news of Kennedy's assassination while we lived there. And of course, when the Six-Day War broke out, they closed the American base there and we were kicked out of the country. So it, it was only for uh, uh, three or four short years. But uh, yeah, that was sort of my introduction to the varying cultures in which we advance our security interests today. I've lived and worked now in 72 different countries, all with different languages, different cultures. Uh, a hermeneuticist uh, dream, actually. But that's the the world that we advance our security industry today, and uh, and I was I guess born into it in that way. John, you had to be one of the first uh, air quote CISOs out there. Well, I was actually the, one of the first CSOs. We, we and in uh, as is we developed a title, uh, chief security officer, specifically for those positions that was going to bring together both the cyber and the physical under one operational umbrella. And not to be confused with CISOs or CISOs who, who just have cyber responsibilities or vice presidents of physical security that were out there quite a bit. This new title, CSO or Chief Security Officer, was specifically crafted to, to cover those who, who would assume this new model of uh, joint physical and cyber operations under one, one, one umbrella. John, we ask all of our pioneers this question. Uh-huh. <laughs> How has a failure set you up for later success? Or maybe better put, do you have a favorite failure of yours? Well, perhaps a more persistent or continuing failure. In fact, when I jumped from being Michael Dell's CSO to join the the startup of Silence, I, I wrote a blog sort of chronicling why I was doing that. That was really perplexing. But it was that that appreciation. In fact, I, like I said, I was writing a blog and I entitled it, you know, The Groundhog is Dead because I felt like I had been reliving over and over again this, this uh, cycle of reactive detection that I didn't seem to be able to, to escape. So that really actually was a, a reflection of what I, I guess I would, I would consider an answer to your question, what has been my, my most frequent and reoccurring failure. And it's that that I, I had to grapple with because I had uh, based my security programs, at least the cyber program, on the anemic performance of what we called signature-based antivirus, where you had to have a, 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 a copy or what we called a, a, a victim zero who first got the, the virus so you could then replicate or come up with a, an antivirus for that, 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 that virus. And, and so both at Lucent when I got there, at Honeywell and at Dell, my initial programs were all, my, my defensive programs were based on antiviruses that were signature-based. Notwithstanding the fact that the bad guys had long ago learned how to defeat signature-based by just tweaking and adjusting the signature just a little bit so it wouldn't be recognized so they could get by. And so it was failure after failure at both of those those three big companies that I asked that actually positioned me and set me up for the appreciation I had for a solution that didn't base itself on signatures, but was based on artificial intelligence and machine learning and had a conviction rate in the high 90s. John, you've been voted one of America's 25 most 
Influential Security Professionals, and you currently serve as a fellow at Utah Valley University's Center for National Security Studies. What advice would you give the young professional that wants to get in this space? Well, uh, you know, it's an interesting time to try and get into this space because, well, a good time in many respects because, you know, the four million open uh, positions that exist in the, the security profession right now is often touted in the headlines. So you would think, well, that's the best, you, you know, you couldn't ask for a better time. And yet I still see tendencies on the part of the industry. In fact, my, my young son was uh, recently graduated with a BA in cybersecurity. And uh, I, I watch him and others who who have gone through and got the formal uh, university training actually then face a a wall, if you will, where uh, you know they the organizations hiring people want uh, individuals who have got actual in the trenches experience, and and so that gives way to some thoughts I've had recently that. What is a, a young person who graduates with with book learning, as you could say, or or uh, university training? What can they do to uh, augment or strengthen the the way they appear or come off to organizations looking to hire folks? And so I put this out to those who are a little younger and looking to enter to consider uh, a stint in government service, particularly the military, the Air Force, particularly has a a good program as a place by which to to augment that training that you've gotten with some real world, uh, top of the drawer, top, uh, top of the mountain uh, experience in terms of going up against adversaries that take a back seat to none as a way of bolstering your presence. So uh, I guess that would, that's the, sort of the, the recommendation I would make for some of those out there to consider that, that possibility and to be open, because uh, this is what's really distinguished my career to what I call the road less traveled. Uh, I think of the times that um, I, I, even my leaving the FBI and joining the private sector at the time was just unheard of. It was a road less traveled, but it's played out very, very nicely for me. Uh, not going down the conventional practice of law, but actually jumping further into academia was considered a road less traveled. But uh, that step into hermeneutics is what gave way to my association with the FBI. And in fact, leaving Los Angeles to go undercover at the CIA to go after spies uh, was considered sort of a, a road less traveled jump in my my career. Hope that's helpful a little bit to the younger members of our, our community who are now listening today. Very much so. John, uh, what motto do you live by? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, I, I don't recall having been asked that. But I mean, at the bottom of my emails, I, I have uh, Semper Vigilance or, or all, uh, Always Vigilant. So, I mean, some might say, well, that must be McClurg's model because he's he's got that on the bottom of all his, uh, his emails. Uh, when in fact, actually, uh, uh, a little sign that I've kept on my desk for over 30 years, I think really is the model that I live by in terms of the way I interact and engage uh, my adversaries and, and my my peers on a daily basis. And this, the, the sign says, herein resides a hopeful skeptic and ontological relationalist. Skepticism is born quite often because of, a, with, at least in academic circles, of the appreciation that we're cognitively limited individuals. There's a limit to our ability to wrap our minds around the variables that are churning at any moment in our lives. That inability quite often gives way to a uh, a skepticism, 
uh, and, and, and quite often a cynically held skepticism. And with the advent of, of tools like artificial intelligence, we've been able to push the, um, the, the horizon and, uh, within which we stand back significantly so that we can actually take in and wrap our what we call our cognitive arms around the variables that could possibly impact our world. It gives way to some hope that I don't think we've had in years past. I think as I was falling prey to those signature-based antiviruses, banging on the, the, the groundhog day in and year in and year out, uh, you lose hope after a while that that's not something you could ever escape. But with the event of, of, of aiding technologies like AI, uh, I found there's even an expanding base upon which to, to have this, this hopeful skepticism. Skepticism that appreciates, appreciates there's always going to be that limitation. But I'm hopeful, not cynical, in, in what the future may hold for me. And, and then in a larger environment, and this is the part that a lot of people say, what on earth did you just say? Ontological relationalist. Ontology is a word that I, you know, I brought with me out of the philosophy world. It looks at the and studies the variables that go up to make us who we are. It's a, a study of being. B-E-I-N-G, and, and what are the elements, and, and this is where hermeneutics comes into play quite often, because it's our hermeneutical practices that actually are at the heart of what makes us who we are as humans, as beings, and to declare that it, when it comes to my appreciation of who I am as a person, as a being, ontologically, that I'm a relationalist, it, it's it's in a declaration and acknowledgement of a principle that now is is made quite popular by the Arbinger Institute. And Fred, you may have heard of this book, uh, Leadership and Self-Deception. It's actually a book I use as the managerial foundation in all the organizations that I've, I've led. And in its heart, puts forth the principle that as long as you're looking at those around you as nothing more than an object, as a tool or instrumentality by which you can advance your interest in either seeking to claim credit or avoid punishment or blame, then the world you're going to live in is going to be far less efficient and effective than you might otherwise be if you adopt an ontological position that sees those folks around you in one way of seeing as an extension of yourself, that we're all bound or linked together and to appreciate and respect their interests and their goals and objectives is something that merits as much considerations as our own or personal ones, then you're going to see a vastly different environment in which to, to advance your core mission. So the, herein resides a hopeful skeptic and ontological relationship is that model and, 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 and creed by which I've advanced my career and my interactions with not only those around me, but even my, my family members over the last 30 years. That's fascinating. I, I really, really appreciate you explaining that, John. Um, what are the biggest changes you expect to see in the physical security space in the next one to three years? I think what's what's going to be one of the biggest challenges is we're going to see that 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 rate of 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 or exacerbation of the the porosity between the physical and cyber worlds just compounded significantly by this this phenomenon we're calling the internet of everything so no matter what physical aspects or devices we used to to embrace and engage in in, in advancing and protecting our physical world uh, interests there as we set them on top of the internet and have merged that world we've seen the attack vectors then striking at our physical interests expanding exponentially just as we see 
you know, in the in the cyber realm, the growth of, of, of threats and, and challenges like the the crimeware as a service, the the dark web and all that it offers in, in the way of ransomware as a service. So I, I think what we're going to continue to see over the next uh, one to three years as this Internet of everything continues, it's just it's exponential growth. These are the, the out of which uh, we're, these this is the, the environment out of which we'll see the biggest changes that we'll see impacting the, the physical security space, it'll almost come to the point, uh, and I've been championing and saying this for 30 years, Fred, that the distinctions we used to like to draw between physical security and cybersecurity is going to be so hard to draw because of that porosity. We're just going to talk about uh, you know, security vulnerabilities or, or threats or, or challenges generally because there will always be that, that cyber element to it. John, uh, you were obviously one of the first to recognize that convergence long before anybody else in this industry. And quite frankly, I've, I've always viewed you as a futurist. <laughs> and if you had to look over the horizon, where do you see our industry 20 years from now being? You know, I am, um, I quite early in my, my journey began to appreciate that, uh, being called, you know, physical security or security itself was somewhat limiting in the corporate environment. And I started to push for our designation as business assurance and business assurance, because almost everybody began to appreciate that no matter where you sat in the organization, no matter what role or job you had, there were dimensions or aspects of it, which if you didn't engage it correctly could bring down the interests of the company. And those interests were quite often classically considered as security, but it was actually just doing business in an assured way. And I, I think uh, we'll continue to see that evolution where uh, no matter what your role or job is, there'll be an appreciation of the fact that uh, you have at least two ways in which to advance your duties in an unassured way or in an assured way. And, uh, the criticality and the success of your organization will in large part be dependent on whether you ch whether you were instructed and, and, and taught how to advance your, your duties and responsibilities in an assured way with the expertise and, and support of those guns, gates, guards, and geeks over there that we used to call the security guys, but are now all of us really. And so we'll continue to leverage that expertise of the guns, gates, guards, and geeks as we all advance our duties, no matter what aspect of the enterprise or the, the NGO or the private, whatever, you know, uh, it'll be that, that evolution that I, I think will characterize the, the next 30 years. John, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? I think, uh, you know, in these turbulent times, there's a lot of unsettling forces out there that can, can leave one feeling despondent and somewhat uh, concerned about how the future will play out. Um, those experiences may seem to be hitting us with a frequency and with a, uh, you know, a wattage that is larger than maybe what we've experienced before. But um, I would, I would just caution everybody to take deep breaths, to take quiet comfort and confidence in the skills and abilities we spent a lifetime developing and, um, and, and the, in the confidence that comes from being able to lock shields, I, again, I think of our relationship, Fred, to lock shields with those who have put just as much time, energy, and effort into, to developing those skills and abilities. And at least in my 
my career, even at times when it felt like we were losing to the bad guys. And I think of how depressed I was in the wake of like the Oklahoma City bombing when we had we had hoped to be able to prevent such terrorist acts, that there are moments, momentary moments when you will feel despondent and like that we might be losing the battle. But in the end, at least in these episodic moments in my my career, uh, we've always seen the light come out and we've actually been come off uh, victor and successful in the end. And I have no reason to be any less confident, notwithstanding what can in the moment be some some disparaging uh, experiences and, or even what the headlines may convey in a, in a dark and, and disparaging way, that uh, we take a deep breath, take quiet confidence in that expertise that we've acquired and, and, and stay engaged in the battle. And I'm confident that uh, we will come off victor in those efforts, just as we have, have in the past. Well said, my friend. And John McClurg, I thank you for being on the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Sure, Fred. Be safe, be well. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai slash center. Again, that's ontic.ai slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.